We're facing several enormous threats that could keep our human civilization from surviving and thriving. These are global problems that no one country alone can solve. And we're quite vulnerable right now because our world does not have the systems in place to coordinate and manage these risks. The best vehicle we have is the United Nations system, but it's not up to the task to help us through this crisis. So we need to fix it and make it stronger. With us today to talk about how we can do that is Mark Leon Goldberg, podcaster, writer, international affairs expert. He has tons of great insights to share with us in a really great conversation. Let's dig in. This is the joy of saving the human race, where we try to get the world to cooperate. It's so the human race can avoid some urgent global problems that could mean the end of civilization and cause lots of suffering around the world. But also, we just want to have a good world that we enjoy and we can feel proud of. We are not just citizens of our own countries. We are citizens of the human race. Let's learn to manage ourselves responsibly. Let's help the human race act like it wants to last for a while. I think humans are awesome and the human race is worth saving. There is no time to waste, so let's do this. Hi friends, welcome to the joy of saving the human race. I'm Shelby Murtis. Thanks for joining me today. So before we dive in, I just want to remind you that this show is available in several places, on YouTube, on Spotify, on multiple podcast players, and I encourage you to subscribe in one or more places. That way you can be updated when uh, new shows come out and we can stay in touch that way. And of course, hit the like and subscribe and all that good stuff, which helps. So today we are going to talk with Mark Leon Goldberg. Um, he is really smart um, in the area of international affairs, United Nations, and all that good stuff. He is the editor of uh, the UN Dispatch, which is a United Nations and global affairs blog. Uh, he also is co-founder of the news clip service Dawn's Digest, uh, which is Development and Aid World News Service. And he is also the host of an outstanding podcast called Global Dispatches Podcast. And that's where I've gotten to know Mark um, over a few years now of listening to so many episodes of his show. Um, it's a really great way to keep up on world affairs and what's going on. Um, and, you know, if I manage ever to say anything smart on international affairs, I probably heard it from Mark. Um, so I'm grateful for all that I've learned from him and his show. So, Mark, thanks for joining us today. Yeah, thanks for having me. Yeah. So let me just kind of frame this conversation about what I'd like to um, learn from you about and just sort of toss some ideas around. So over, you know, some years now, I've become increasingly concerned with um, some really big threats to humanity, where our future could be pretty bleak if we don't solve things like climate change, the destruction of nature, pandemics, nuclear weapons, which could blow us all up, but yet people don't talk about it enough. 
um, and some related issues like, you know, intense migration of people that could happen from climate change or, you know, poverty and inequality in the world. Um, there's some really, really serious stuff we serious stuff that we face that no one country alone can solve. And so um, I'm looking at the United Nations system as pretty critical to the future success of humanity. Um, do you share this kind of concern or am I exaggerating or being overly dramatic? It feels incredibly important to me in that way, but um, I don't know, how do you feel on this front, I guess? And, and what, um, what makes the United Nations important to you and why do you work so much on it? So I firmly believe there are a certain set of global problems from climate change to nuclear proliferation to, uh, uh, you know, we used to talk about terrorism to global terrorism. Uh, to gender equality and inequality around the world, to poverty and inequality in general. There are, these are a set of global problems that really require global solutions. We used to call them problems without passports. These are the kinds of issues that require global cooperation to solve. And the United Nations can be a useful platform uh, around which organizations, countries, people can can work towards common solutions to these global problems. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. So I want much of our conversation to talk about maybe how we can beef up the United Nations system and improve it and make it more capable of dealing with these threats. But it, we should first maybe focus on the positive. Like what's what's good about it? What has it achieved so far that's been useful? That, that we can build upon? So the most basic fundamental utility of the United Nations since 1945 has been that there has not been a third world war. In the generation preceding the founding of the United Nations, there were two world wars. In fact, in the uh, preamble to the UN Charter, they talk about you know um, the preceding generations having uh, you know been engulfed by these two world wars and the goal of the united nations was to was to uh, save succeeding generations from the scourge of war uh there of course have been lots of wars there's been lots of internal conflict there's been lots of uh inter wars between countries but there has not been this major cataclysmic war that were that there was twice prior to the founding of the un so on that fundamental premise the un has succeeded um, there are, you know, it has obviously fallen short of, of saving the world from war. Wars happen all the time today. But one thing I think that's often overlooked in how the general public perceives the United Nations is that there are really like two UNs. When, when I, I talk to people about the UN, there's the UN that talks and there's the UN that acts. The UN that talks is the UN that often falls short of coming together around, for example, uh, a way to stop the Syria crisis or uh, unity at the Security Council to, you know, prevent a famine from befalling uh, Ethiopia, which looks like it, it's going to happen pretty soon. 
So there are those kind of failures of the UN that talks. There are also some successes of the UN that talks, uh, but those are some, it's typically the failures uh, that, that get the most attention and, and rightfully so. But then there's the UN that acts. This is the UN that uh, is providing humanitarian assistance around the world. That's providing shelter and safe haven for millions of refugees. That is coordinating a global rollout of the COVID-19 vaccine that's supporting countries in Africa that don't have the health capacity on their own to beef up their health systems to tackle preventable childhood illnesses and, and has uh, uh, made polio virtually extinct from around the world. So there, there's sort of the UN in the world and then there's the UN that talks. And so it's, I think, important when we're talking about success or failures of the UN to disaggregate those two. Um, do you think the positive sides are poorly understood in the world, like by policymakers or by regular people? Yeah, I, I, I think in general, the United Nations is, is like an underappreciated, uh, at least here, here in the United States, is an underappreciated tool of US foreign policy and also of global security. Um, you know, policymakers here in the United States often, I think, don't in particular appreciate the role of UN peacekeepers around the world. Um, there's like about 100,000 peacekeepers and about 12 missions around the world right now. And by and large, these peacekeepers are preventing simmering conflicts from turning into like hot conflicts that could have really profound international implications. So you have, um, you know, even peacekeeping missions that have been around forever, like in Cyprus, uh, you know, Cyprus used to be this place where Turkey and Greece would, would fight over. And now there has been a peacekeeping there for decades and decades, but there's no hot conflict there as well. You know, people aren't dying in Cyprus because in part of this peacekeeping mission, or you can look at, um, you know, any other, many other peacekeepings, not all, not all of them are, are sort of made the same. But in many situations around the world, peacekeepers have been able to contribute to a reduction of violence. A good example of this is Liberia, I think. Uh, there is no UN peacekeeping mission in Liberia currently because they work themselves out of a job. In 2002, Liberia was gripped by this horrible civil war. I think a quarter million people died. A peacekeeping mission lasted there for a little over 10 years. And you know they've had now they've had, you know, are able to handle their own security and have had uh, multi-party elections and a peaceful handover of power. So it's, it's those kinds of examples, I think, that people sometimes underappreciate. Exactly. Well, thanks for laying that out. I, I feel like part of my role in doing this work is to be a cheerleader and, mm -hmm. and bring some attention to the positivity and, and more positive in the future. Yeah. So. I mean, um, it's not all, it's yeah. not all positive. There, there are certainly a lot of problems, but it's the problems that are often emphasized as opposed to like the day-to-day -day work of um, what the uh, second UN secretary general said, not, not sort of bringing the world to heaven, but saving it from hell. That's, that's mm. the, the basic function, I think. Well, so say we wanted to make this system stronger, um, and more capable to deal with these big problems that we're facing, pretend you could just wave your magic wand and just assume there's the political will to do so, what changes would you wanna see? 
how would you want to see it strengthened or improved? I think one fundamental issue about the UN that people don't appreciate it is, is that how terribly underfunded it is. Um, it, it So the United States is the single largest contributor to the UN. It contributes about 27% of the cost of UN peacekeeping and about 24-ish percent of the cost of uh, operating like the regular UN budget, keeping the lights on, paying the bills, paying the translator, um, paying salaries of, of the staff at, at the UN. And the uh, budget of the UN is you know, based on member payment, dues payments from 192 members with wealthier countries paying it, but more, the US is the largest funder. Then there's a second set of um, funding streams that like the UN, when I was talking about the UN that that does, these rely on voluntary contributions. They're essentially funded by donations, the World Food Program, UNICEF, um, and the UN Refugee Agency. These are, these agencies do incredibly important work around the world, but every year they have to go hat in hand to donors, mostly governments, to fund their work. And, you know, inevitably, uh, the needs outpace the demands. So you have situations where, for example, um, the World Food Program just said yesterday that they're going to run out of, or no, pardon, not yesterday, earlier, uh, last month, that they are going to run out of money for their Afghanistan operations. They're going to have to cut food rations. And so, like, you know, if I could like wave my magic wand, I don't want to get too deep in, in, in the weeds here, but um, I would change the funding structure of some of uh, the UN agencies so that they're funded out of like regular payments as opposed to having to ask for donations all the time. Uh, and I would also uh, sharply increase the amount of money that governments around the world pay into these bodies to enable them to more robustly do their work. You know, I, I don't have the figures in front of me at the moment, but my memory tells me that the the annual budget for the UN system is somewhere around fifty five million. Kind no, of rings uh, a bell. No, no, it's 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 more than that. Like, okay, um, it depends like how you count the UN system. If you're talking about like the UN regular budget, so just you know, operating staff, you know, in New York headquarters in Vienna and, and in many missions around the world. That I think comes to, can't quote me on this, so we'll have to fact check this, yeah, but yeah. about six-ish billion dollars uh, a year. Uh, and then UN peacekeeping is larger than that. And I, I can't quote that number off the top of my head, but it's, I, I think it's about like triple that or double that, um, triple that, I think. Uh, and, uh, you know, we'll have to have, to, these are easily accessible numbers. Yeah. So it, I'll you're find like, it and I'll plug it in the show notes here. But like the point is, I I, I, I um, did these calculations once uh, that the U.S. Department of Defense is about seven hundred billion dollars a year, mm -hmm. and this is a fraction of that. Yeah. Um, a good here here's a, a good point of comparison as well. The International Atomic Energy Agency, the IAEA, is based in in Vienna. Um, you know, its main job or one of its key jobs is to monitor uh, compliance with the Nonproliferation Treaty, uh, to make sure that countries around the world aren't like building nuclear weapons, including, you know, Iran. Um, the budget of the nuclear inspectors for the IAEA is 
less than the police budget of the city of Vienna, where the IAEA is located. So it's just like kind of, it's, it's sort of factoids like that, which I think underscore how we give the UN this kind of outsized role in world affairs, uh, yet it is not often resourced accordingly. When I find it striking to compare those kinds of figures with the amount the world spends on military each year. So like the United States, over 700 billion in military, and in the world, all the countries spend, I think it's 2 trillion per year, which is so many times over what the, the UN budget is. You know, you could double or quadruple or times 10 the UN budget and not even come close to what the world spends on military. So it just sort of shows me that the world maybe cares more about fighting than about solving problems. <laughs> you know, mm -hmm. it just seems really um, kind of whack to me. Wait, well, I, have, I found the figures, I found the figures. It was, oh, good. It's, uh, it's, it's about three billion a year for the regular budget and about six and a half billion for a peacekeeping budget. Yeah, yeah. And they, they do their, they, the, the reason I was giving higher numbers is that they approve their budget on the biennium every two years. Uh, so I was combining the, the two. Yeah. So why do you think there is such a huge funding shortfall? Why don't countries see it as useful to kick in more funding and make more happen? Um, you know, I, I think many countries do, you know, to, to their credit. There are a lot of countries in the world that contribute particularly to those voluntary contributions to um, like the World Food Program, the UN Refugee Agency, UNICEF, those kind of uh, humanitarian organizations above their weight. The Scandinavian countries in particular, Norway in particular, has always been a very uh, robust funder of uh, humanitarian uh, initiatives and causes. Um, you know, like, you look here in, in the United States, at least the country whose politics I'm most familiar with, and the incentives don't necessarily align with, you know, contributing more to uh, foreign entities, even though it makes sense in, in the long run, there's not often a short-term gain. You know, there's in the sort of bifurcated partisan politics we have here in the United States, the, you know, general Republican approach to the United Nations, and, and there has been more or less a consensus that was kind of broken by Trump, but still exists to a certain degree uh, among Republican elected officials that the UN does serve American interests. It is like a useful entity, uh, yet their approach to the UN tends to be one in which they want to withhold funding from the UN in order to extract concessions uh, from it. Uh, in terms of how it operates, in terms of what it sees as, as its priorities. Um, and it uses kind of like the, the purse strings to try to influence uh, how the UN works in ways that they perceive to be like in, in, in their interests. And, uh, and in some cases, they're able to withhold funding from UN agencies. So for example, uh, whenever a Republican is in charge of the White House, the United States no longer funds the UN Population Fund, which is uh, a UN entity that supports reproductive health and sexual health around the world because of like abortion politics here in the United States, even though the UNFPA doesn't have anything to do with abortions, it's still kind of like caught up in that. 
Uh, whereas when Democrats are, are in office, they are more likely to you know, want to work with the United Nations and provided it with the funding it, it needs. Uh, though there's rarely this like clamoring to sharply increase uh, the you know, UN, UN funding. I mean, here we have like one, one good example before us, we're speaking in, uh, in October and a month from now, we have uh, a huge climate change conference organized under UN auspices, COP26 in Glasgow, Scotland. This is like a huge inflection point for climate change. It's the, it was supposed to happen last year as a five-year checkup on the 2015 Paris Accords, but it was uh, delayed a year because of COVID. So this is supposed to be the time in which countries that are that have joined the Paris Accords increase their ambitions on climate change and to you know increase what they're going to individually bring to the table to collectively um, do something more meaningful on on climate change. And one key sticking point in these negotiations is this figure of $100 billion uh, towards climate mitigation and adaptation that the wealthier countries in the world, those of us who are more responsible for the junk in the atmosphere, will contribute to uh, poorer countries in the world who suffer disproportionately because of climate change and have little and, and are not responsible for it because they're not the ones who have been polluting for hundreds of years. Uh, so there is this idea that was actually agreed to in 2009 at the Copenhagen uh, climate, climate Summit that these countries would bring $100 billion a year to the table to support these poor countries. That money just like hasn't been mobilized. Um, Biden, to his credit, has increased what the U.S. is pledging to it. But it's again, it's nowhere near commensurate the amount uh, that's required to meet this kind of fundamental linchpin of international climate negotiations. So that's just like you know one example. And you know there's there's like climate activists who are who are clamoring for it. Uh, but other uh, constituencies of U.S. you know politics are not clamoring for this you know 100 billion dollars in climate finance. It doesn't have to all come from the United States, but a lot of it should, given that we are the top contributor to uh, like carbon in the atmosphere. Yeah. And it strikes me as strange that during COVID-19 pandemic, wealthier countries came up with so many trillions of dollars for economic stimulus. Like they obviously can find money when they want to find money, but yet $100 billion to save humanity from destruction, from climate change, Somehow they can't come up with it. It's just like it's really strange. Yeah, to I mean, me. it's you know, like I said, it's a matter of of political will. I mean, there is a hundred billion dollars a year out there, uh, spread yeah. amongst all the countries of yeah, the we world. We have the money. Yeah, it's just it's just a, a matter of political will. Yeah. Well, and and what I've been noticing too is with this UN system, it's not only just low funding that's a problem, but it seems to be so erratic. Like if a country doesn't pay their bills and then the UN is scrambling, like, hey, how do we pay for something this year? Like it, it's hard to budget when countries are so intermittent in their paying their bills. And then like you say, the UN's going around after some emergency, like, hey, please, can you kick in money to help these poor people we're trying to help? It's just not a sound way to run an organization with all that um, inconsistency. Yeah, the the UN actually last year ran into a liquidity crisis where 
so many countries were late on their due payments that the secretary general warned that they're going to have to start like shutting down some operations. That's not good. <laughs> no. Let's and try then to you, fix you that. Have, like, and, and the way in which the international community has decided to respond to natural and man-made crises, like an earthquake in Haiti or um, like the uh, dissolution of, of Syria and the humanitarian crisis that it that 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 follows is generally by having like a giant fundraising summit. You have you have the UN agencies are coordinated by this by this off by this entity at the UN called the Office for the Coordination of Humanitarian Affairs. It goes by the acronym OCHA. They assess what say the World Food Program needs to do food for this crisis what unicef needs to do they do water and sanitation they you know if there's a humanitarian emergency unicef is you know in charge of, of the water and the toilets is a, in addition to uh other aspects of, of child health um basically and, and there are also private organizations like save the children or the international rescue committee that are involved in these efforts and so they get a, a kind of like a grand total this is like what our needs are to provide uh, basic humanitarian relief to X number of people for X period of time. This is what we need. Say it's like $1 billion. They'll put out a call for pledges and they'll typically get about 30% of what they, of what they ask for, depending on the crisis. But usually it's, it's tough initially at least to get more than 30%. And then they'll get more over time, but it's always uh, like a hard job fundraising. And then you end up competing with crises. Like if you're an organ, if you're a government with, resources, you know, say you have like $10 million to donate for food aid. Do you give it to the famine in Yemen or do you give it to the famine in Ethiopia? I mean, it, 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 it's a challenge uh, for governments to, to sort of deal with. And it's just like a, it's at once a, I think a good thing that we have entities and organizations that are out there trying to coordinate a humanitarian response. They're like the ambulance service that comes after a crisis, uh, yet at the same time, it certainly can be more efficient. And it seems a healthy setup would be to just fund it in advance, because we know there's always going to be more calamities in the world. That's just yeah. how the world works. Just put the money in there, have it ready, so you have the staff and supplies ready to go, and can yeah. just go there right away, instead of after the fact, being yeah. slow and trying to scrounge up money. So they have, they did, I like in 2005 ish, create a kind of um, what they call the Central Emergency Response Fund, which is, you know, a few million dollars here and there that the um, UN agencies can release immediately for like a quick injection of funds to support. Um, uh, quick emergency relief for both um, quick onset emergencies, but also more neglected ones that don't have the kind of political um, cachet to whip to get like a lot of donations. Like if a crisis is happening in a country that is far from a priority from the major donors, it's much harder to raise money for that humanitarian emergency. All right, we have some work to do, <laughs> some things to fix. <laughs> Um, I want to switch gears a little bit and um, talk about the Security Council. Mm -hmm. um, 
You know, the Security Council has many functions within the UN, but largely around war and peace and those kinds of issues, but also in just how the UN is structured and how it fun functions. And um, it troubles me that five countries in the world have veto power, and any one of them can stop almost anything the UN wants to do. It seems to just um, shut down a lot of potential action. Um, what do you think about this? I mean, what? it seems to me there's a big need to change this. Uh, do people talk about this? So Security Council reform is like an ever-present issue at the United Nations. As long as I've been covering it, there's been clamoring to figure out how to maybe uh, reform the veto or add new countries as permanent members to make it reflect the realities of 2021 as opposed to the realities of like 1945. Um, Just for listeners, I want to remind them that the big five are the US, China, Russia, England, and France, mm -hmm. which were, you know, came out on top after World War II, but don't really reflect um, the power structure of today's world. Yes. Um, although I also don't want to overstate um, Security Council paralysis because of, of the veto. There is a lot of day-to-day -day work of the Security Council that gets done very unremarkably and without anyone casting a veto. And in fact, vetoes are, are rare because the Security Council seeks to achieve consensus. Um, most of the day-to-day -day work of the Security Council involves renewing and reviewing the mandate of UN peacekeeping missions around the world. Like, so for example, you have a peacekeeping mission in the Central African Republic. It was, uh, and every year, once a year, its mandate comes up for renewal and its mandate includes how many troops should be dispatched, what should the troops jobs be, um, you know, how, how should we approach this security council mission? Should there be benchmarks for success? Things like that. Um, and these, because there's, there are many um, Security Council, uh, pardon me, many peacekeeping missions, these mandate renewals come up fairly often. And they are usually very um, well debated and discussed. And there's almost always consensus and agreement at the Security Council to renew the mandate and to you know fix the mandate to current priorities. And it usually happens. I mean, there's always like some debate between countries about what should be emphasized, but usually it, it, the mandate gets renewed. And this happens a lot. This is like the day-to-day -day work of the Security Council. And it's overlooked because it is like the everyday work of the council. And there's almost never a veto cast to block uh, this kind of work. So there is still a great deal of cooperation that happens. It just doesn't get the attention that the discord does. Um, and the discord uh, often results in paralysis by the council, which restricts the Security Council's ability to do anything about ongoing crises. Um, and that's, I think, the, the, the key challenge. And I think a reflection of geopolitics today, I mean, you've seen a growing split between the United States, United Kingdom and France on the one hand, and China and Russia on the other. And those splits become even more have become even more aggravated over time. You saw it in Syria, where Russia steadfastly refused to allow any meaningful resolution 
uh, to pass a security council that might have nudged the uh, de-escalation of the Syria crisis. Uh, you see it uh, manifest itself, on the other hand, on the Arab-Israeli conflict, where the U.S. is often the one preventing Security Council unanimity on resolutions pertaining to the Arab-Israeli conflict. Uh, so, yes, it's, it's definitely like a, a problem. Uh, and it is an ongoing problem, and it's a problem that's getting worse as geopolitical tensions heighten, specifically between the U.S. and Russia and China. Um, but I also don't want to overstate the problem. Like the Security Council still works and, and does a lot of important work. It just doesn't, as I said, get the attention of the discord. Do you think there's times when issues are just simply not brought up for consideration because countries assume that one of the countries will veto? Like, oh, we're not even going to bother because I know China won't go for it. Or, no, nah, the U.S. won't go for that. We won't even talk about it because it's useless. So in those situations, the they diplomats at the UN have devised a way, a kind of um, a way to still hold Security Council meetings that aren't actually Security Council meetings, uh, because they know certain countries would object. These, not to get too nerdy, these are called ARIA formula meetings because uh, they're named after a South American diplomat who thought of this. But basically, if you have, if you are the United States and you want to shine a spotlight on, um, and, and this actually was a meeting during the Obama administration, on violence committed against uh, LGBT people, um, the U.S. wanted to hold this meeting. Russia, you know, uh, would not have anything to do with it. And they wouldn't even like attend or they wouldn't even agree to this being this on, on the council. So they held like a parallel meeting of the Security Council members, except Russia, to, to kind of highlight this. And stuff like that happens uh, often. But you'll also get, um, um, you'll, you'll have diplomats kind of feel each other out. So for example, um, a, recent, a recent challenge was Myanmar. Uh, the, the coup in Myanmar uh, was something that was of concern to the entire international community. Uh, China being so close to Myanmar had a certain way to approach this that differed from much of the rest of the Security Council. Uh, and so it's in those negotiations that you try to find whatever common ground you have. And there are different levels of action the Security Council can take. There's a resolution. Uh, which is like the most basic um, kind of form of, of statement that this is what we in the Security Council uh, agree needs to happen. And a resolution needs to have nine affirmative votes and zero vetoes from any of the five members uh, in, order, in order to pass. And resolutions have the power, if they so invoke it, of becoming you know, binding international law. They could you know, sanction a mil they could authorize a military intervention or peacekeeping missions under, you know, binding international law, chapter seven authority they have. That's like one level of action. Then there's other levels of action that are, e that are, are important as well. These are called a security council statements or a presidential statement or a press statement, basically statements. And, and the significance of a statement is that it reflects the consensus of the security council. All 15 members need to agree to it. Uh, and so oftentimes you'll have a situation where there's an ongoing emergency somewhere uh, or like one country is threatening to fight another 
and the Security Council will issue a statement which itself expresses, you know, total global concern over this um, over this you know, crisis that that's unfolding. And whereas it doesn't have the force of law, it is a reflection of uh, consensus and, and sort of where the world stands on it. So oftentimes leaders do pay a lot of attention to that. Hmm. And, and, and I should say those like statements of consensus still happen all the time. Uh, yeah. do, you, do you think they make a difference? These sort of statements or resolutions or, you know, the body saying, we believe this, does it get anybody to change their behavior? Yeah, I think it, I think it um, oftentimes gets um, governments to perhaps re restrain themselves in ways that they might not otherwise, knowing that, okay, even Russia and China agreed to the statement. Mm -hmm. Maybe they, you know, maybe they really don't want us to take that next step. Uh, and put them in a position where they might have to cast a veto on our behalf, or maybe they won't cast a veto on our behalf. Yeah. So I think it does help serve uh, as as a to restrain actions in, in in that way. But Chapter Seven resolutions certainly have like an impact uh, on the world, compelling countries to do certain things. I mean, uh, so for example, one a Chapter Seven resolution off the top of my head was a 2011 uh, resolution authorizing NATO intervention in Libya. Like a lot of countries, because that resolution passed, joined the coalition that, you know, bombed Libya and got rid of Gaddafi. Whether or not that was like a good or bad thing, you can debate, but that enabled that intervention to happen. Or another chapter seven resolution gave the, gave the International Criminal Court jurisdiction over uh, the genocide in Darfur and over Sudan. And now there's a situation where you have the former now deposed uh, dictator of, of Sudan, Omar al-Bashir, like may now be sent to The Hague to face trial. So these do have like real world impacts. Or sanctions is probably the, the biggest one, North Korea sanctions. Um, it was in Iran sanctions. It was chapter seven sanctions on certain industries in Iran that brought Iran to the table for nuclear talks. And similarly, you know, the, the world has a number of the, the Security Council has a number of sanctions imposed on, you know, North Korea individuals and as well as um, other sanctions against nefarious actors around the world. So I know this perception I have about the UN system, which I know will vary by issue area, but um, there's times when I wish it had more teeth in order to like make things happen um, and enforce things rather than just saying, hey, please, can you do this? Or, you know, so like in the area of the climate that we talked about earlier, there's this voluntary process where countries just willingly offer how much they're willing to cut their emissions. And I don't know, we'll see, maybe they'll do it, maybe they won't. And a lot of them won't. And there's no real enforcement process. Or like, you know, when countries are tearing down their rainforest, which has global implications. You know, there doesn't seem to be a process for saying, hey, you can't do that. You have to stop. Or, you know, the world trade um, that happens is sort of devouring nature around the world due to overconsumption. But we don't have any system to say, hey, we got to stop this. <laughs> you know, don't do that. 
Do you see opportunities to beef up this kind of thing where the international body can actually enforce better behavior that protects us all? So enforcement generally comes through treaties. Uh, and you know, you're talking about like the, the climate, uh, the, the Paris Climate Agreement is not a treaty. It's like a political agreement. The, the climate agreement that preceded it, the Kyoto Protocol was a treaty. Uh, but the United States, for one, didn't join the treaty. Um, there are other environmental treaties that have been wildly successful, like the Montreal Protocol to close the hole in the ozone layer. That's probably the most successful environmental treaty of, of all time. And it worked because in treaties, there tend to be enforcement mechanisms where countries are, are brought to task should they violate the obligations that they signed up for under the treaty. Um, the problem is treaties are harder and harder to uh, pass, at least here in the United States, uh, especially kind of more controversial ones. There are some like uncontroversial treaties that, that are fine, but treaties having to do with the environment or military force um, have an exceptionally difficult hurdle here in the United States, you know, the, 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 the base of, of the United Nations, the host country, where you need like over two thirds of the United States Senate to, to ratify a, a treaty. And, you know, we can't get 48, 450 senators to pass a, a reconciliation bill. So you see it, these things get very, very difficult. So many other countries have the same kind of trouble getting on board with a treaty. Yeah. Yeah. They have their own yeah. politics too. Yeah. So, so that's, I think, you know, part of the issue. The other is just like how the UN is, is structured. I mean, the secretary general uh, is, you know, maybe more a secretary than a general. He has no army. Um, he can't, uh, you know, if, if there is a peacekeeping mission that should be deployed somewhere, the UN doesn't have a standing peacekeeping force to deploy to stop like an oncoming army from ravaging a group of civilians. They need to call on UN member states to summon their troops. Uh, there's not like, you know, you can't like wave a magic wand and, and, and deploy our, and, and deploy troops somewhere. Um, so uh, yeah, I mean, it's, it's a problem. It's just, I think a reflection of international politics as it exists today more than anything else that, that governments are less willing to give up a degree of sovereignty to this supranational organization uh, give up some of their sovereignty in order for, to, to achieve that common good is that just like been a very difficult ask. Uh, and it's even more difficult now in sort of the current international political climate. Something I wish would happen in these conversations mm -hmm. is that countries would not see it as a restriction of their own sovereignty, but would see these stronger tools as a way to get all their neighbors on board with the good thing. So that if you want to um, help the environment, be good to the climate, just generally be good, you don't have to take the risk of going out there alone because a better international system will make everybody else do it too and just get everybody on board at the same time. Um, I kind of wish the shift would occur in people's thinking instead of being afraid of international systems. Yeah, I mean, that's like a general multilateralist way of, of looking at the world. And let's be honest, there's like a, a huge constituency here in the United States for what you articulated. And I think it's a it's probably an ideal that's shared by Biden him, himself. I mean, it is. He is someone who 
over the course of his career has demonstrated an affinity for multilateralism and a belief that um, working cooperatively with other countries around the world is a better way to solve global problems. But uh, like I said, the, the UN does not have jurisdiction over you know, everything. And, and um, it is not like a institution of global government governance that is a world government. It is a platform for cooperation on things. And so when governments want to get together and cooperate on things, they can accomplish huge things. Like I said, closing the hole in the ozone layer. That, that was an environmental treaty you know, negotiated through the UN and, and governments around the world you know, saw the, this as a common threat to humanity and, and, and they got it done. Um, it's just like a matter, I think, more or less of, of political will. Do you think that political will varies? Well, I know it varies country by country, but you know, what are some of the countries that would be influential and helpful on making the UN more capable versus what are some other countries that might stand in the way? You know, to some degree, I think it varies issue by issue, but in general, like the historic trend has been that European countries see greater value in establishing firm rules of the international road um, and in wanting to build a robust international legal architecture to facilitate global cooperation. Uh, that's something I think ingrained in the post-war European psyche. Um, that they've practiced by forming the, the European Union. You exactly. know, they've been doing that for decades. So. Yeah, exactly. Um, and But you're now sort of forced into this new kind of superpower rivalry between the United States and China, which upends that to a certain degree. One thing that has been interesting to see over the last several years has been the extent and the degree to which China as the rising power has sought not to replace the international system that was built by the United States mostly at the end of World War II, but to participate in it. Uh, and so to a certain degree, it has been heartening to see that China is working to a degree within the UN and is working kind of cooperatively within the UN as opposed to trying to like destroy it from the outside as opposed to viewing it as this kind of Western liberal democratic um, institution. Rather, it's it's sort of latching onto it to, to a certain degree, which I think is important and also a demonstration that the United Nations can be useful in um, managing and working with major global power shifts in which you have the U.S. declining, China rising. This is usually, according to international relations theory, a time in which a world war would break out. Um, so it'll be like, it, it's somewhat heartening to see China working cooperatively within the UN on many issues, though you know they could invade Taiwan tomorrow and that could be <laughs> off, off the table. But so far they have not taken this like radical approach to the established international order. They've done their own. They, they they've done their own things in in their region, establishing like the uh, the a, a kind of rival to the World Bank, the Asia Infrastructure Development Bank. But it hasn't. They're not seeking to overturn the rules of the road that were established, um, you know, after World War II. 
So I know that I'm not alone and you're not alone in wanting to see a stronger United Nations system to serve our needs. And I know that there's whole, a whole collection of organizations and advocates and policymakers that are pushing for this and putting good ideas out there and talking about it. But for whatever reason, we haven't gotten the sort of grassroots citizen uh, uprising or push or whatever to get governments on board with improvements. I mean, do you see, um, I don't know, what needs to happen, I guess, for us to, to get countries on board with a more international approach? Um, you know, I, I, I don't have a background in organizing. I couldn't tell you what I think <laughs> <It's fine. laughs> citizens need to do to, to rise up. I mean, there are important um grassroots organizations out there is like the united nations associations around the world um that you know try to get individuals uh, connected with the united nations and to have them support you know the idea of international cooperation through the un and also around important international issues like anti-poverty and, and other issues around like the sustainable development goals so there, i mean there is there is, there is that. And I know the United Nations also has tried to take a big steps in recent years in order to kind of reach people directly. They've done a couple of times over the last few years, these like huge survey endeavors in which they seek to, in as many communities around the world, as many languages as possible, conduct these surveys in order to get feedback directly from individuals about what their priorities are in, in their sort of local context. And presumably the leadership of the UN would then, you know, take those into account when um, designing programs and initiatives. You know, in this whole space of um, UN improvements, there's, I, I see a need for some really big changes that some might see as politically infeasible. Like, oh yeah, you're not gonna get people to sign on to that, that's too crazy. But then maybe they're not talked about enough because people don't see them as politically feasible. Like, do you think there's sort of a restraint that people have, like not wanting to be too out there in their suggestions and, and stay with more, I don't know, small baby steps that maybe aren't enough? Uh, I don't know. Or are there others being as bold as we need in, in, their, in their suggestions? I mean, if you look at like the secretary general, when COVID broke out, he called for a global ceasefire. I mean, that's, that's pretty, pretty big. Bold. That's pretty <laughs> yeah. bold. And, and yeah. Yeah, the security council didn't take him up on it. Uh, so, you know, yeah, there are true. people out there, important people out there who are, uh, who, who are, I think, trying to think big and, and act big, mm -hmm. but they are typically constrained by politics. Yeah, exactly. Well, I know that you have uh, limited time, um, you know, and I can let you go when you're ready, but is there any um, sort of last thoughts on what we've been talking about today that are, you know, maybe we didn't hit that you want to raise? Uh, I would just emphasize that like the sustainable development goals, which were created in 2015 and are due in 2030, are an important reflection, I think, of a United Nations that is opening itself up to outside suggestion. Uh, the Sustainable Development Goals 
uh, replace the Millennium Development Goals, which were developed kind of behind closed doors and imposed upon the world, whereas the Sustainable Development Goals were the product of a lot of input from civil society, from individuals, from people in the developing world, uh, people are around the world. And as a result, I think they are on much stronger political footing. And the Sustainable Development Goals, even if you have countries who act in contravention to a lot of what the United Nations uh would idealistically stand for. Uh, I think the sustainable development goals have still nonetheless served as a rallying cry and as a benchmark against which governments, even local governments measure progress themselves. And so the advent of the sustainable development goals in, in 2015 and their introduction in the world has I think been an important catalyst for social and economic development around the world, even if it's not routinely recognized as such. Um, I agree. <laughs> They're incredibly important. Do you feel like um, we're on track to meet them? Uh, no, COVID, um, COVID knocked us off track. Some we may be on track for. Uh, I, haven't, I've, I usually do like an episode on this uh, for my podcast once or twice a year about whether or not what we're on track for what we're not on track for, but the, the COVID did, did real bad damage to the sustainable development goals, knocking us off course uh, on, on a lot of them. So we'll have to see the extent to which uh, we're able to, to, to bounce back, but you know, we'll, we'll see. Yeah. Well, and I guess the system includes, you know, data collection yeah. and progress and all that. So people can yeah. hopefully see soon, like, hey, we got to get back on. So, yeah. Uh, yeah. Well, Mark, thank you so much for joining me today. Um, this has been really useful for me and I assume for the listeners, too, to learn about this stuff. And I'm just grateful for you spending some time with me. Thank you all so right. much. Thanks yeah. so much. And listeners, I will encourage you to um, listen to Mark's podcast, um, check out his news service, his blog. I will put links to all these in the show notes. Um, and thank you for joining us. I'm grateful for you spending some time with me. All right. Take care. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening, but you're not done yet. We can't change the world if we keep the joy of saving the human race to ourselves. Help me spread the word and help this movement grow. Please subscribe to the show, both the podcast and the YouTube channel. Leave ratings or reviews, which encourages others to listen. Share this show with others on your social media. Even better, just tell a friend about it and have a good conversation about the state of the world. These things really make a difference. I hope you can help the show grow and reach a larger audience. I'm grateful for your help. Thank you. And please stay in touch with me. I love to get feedback, suggestions, and questions. Go to the website at joyofsavingthehumanrace.com. At the website, you'll learn more about the show, and you can sign up to get occasional email updates. Thanks to Moby for the show's theme music, and thanks to you for being here. All right, we're done for today. Be well. I'll talk to you soon.